Amen. Have a seat. Good morning. Oh, come on. You knew better than that. Good morning. Man, we are so glad you're here this morning, glad that God has brought you this morning to be with us. Um, I was thinking this last week of kind of journey back on my own journey of faith, and, and I really feel like, you know, one of those big years of my life was when I was a junior in high school. I was 17 years old, and it was a big journey for me because it was the first time in my life <clears throat> that I really got involved with our, um, our, our, our student ministry at our church, and the youth pastor was awesome. Uh, wasn't as awesome as Elijah is, but he was an awesome guy, and uh, I really got involved with our student ministry, and it was also the year of my life when I surrendered my life and the call to ministry, and so that was a big year for me, and I'll never forget, there's a moment that happened to me in that year that radically made an impact on my life. I was uh, home one night, it was probably like a Thursday night or so, and I was home, and it was in the fall of the year, I remember that because it was after, it was during football season, and I get a phone call uh, from my youth pastor, which, you know, when your youth pastor calls, either that's a very encouraging thing, or all of a sudden your heart begins to sink to your toes. You know what I'm talking about? Like, what have I done? And, and it was one of those phone calls. And he called me and he said, hey, Doug, how you doing? I'm like, good, I think. And so I'm like, what's going on? And he's like, hey, man, he's like, do you know so-and-so, which was a girl in our student ministry? I said, yeah, I know her. I said, well, today she was, has a friend of hers that she's been trying to share her faith with and try to get to come to church. And they were walking the hallways at, at, at school the, today after school. And, and, and they kind of bumped into you. I go, okay, that's great. And they said, he said, well, no, they didn't say anything to you, but they bumped into you because as they walked by you, they heard you talking to someone else. And I'm like, okay. And he's like, and what she heard you say was things that weren't okay to say. You were using some language that wasn't okay to say. And think about that. Called a ministry, involved in my student ministry. I mean, I was like there. I mean, when the doors were open, I was there. And yet he calls me out. And then he followed up with this question. Did you do that? And I did what all godly men do, which is what? I lied. I mean, I flat out just go, no, I didn't say that. That must have been the other guy. Now, golly men don't do that, so that's too weird. But I did. I flat out lied. And then after I lied, and he's like, okay, that's cool. I just wanted to, I just, I just wanted to know. And, and we hung up the phone, and we kind of walked on from there. And then a couple days later, I had to go into his office, and I said, hey, Mike, hey, hey, I just flat out lied. And he just looked at me, and he smiled real big and goes, I know, I know. He said, but here's why I called, because I want you to know something. You've been called to ministry, and you're trying to make a difference on your football team for Christ, and you're doing a great job. And, you know, you're trying to live for the Lord. You're a leader in our student ministry, and you had a moment where you said some things you shouldn't have said. And I understand they said, but here's what you need to know. People are watching you, Doug. And everything you say, the character and the conduct of your life matters. And I'm telling you, I learned that lesson at 17. Now, I would love to tell you I've always gotten it right, and I haven't. But here's what I do know. The character and the conduct of our lives really do matter. And there are many people in this room today that say that you personally have a relationship with Jesus Christ. You would say that you have something more. That there's been a moment in your life that Jesus radically has changed your life. And you've passed from death into life and from darkness into light. And you know that if you die, you're going to spend eternity with him in heaven. And so some of you, many of you in the room, that is your story. You would say, I know I belong to Christ. I truly have something more. If that's you today, listen to this. If that's you today... It's important for us to learn the same lesson, that what we say, the character and the conduct of our life matters. And here's why. I said it week one. Because there's a lost world watching. There is. And there's a lost world waiting to see what we're going to say and how we respond to life. 
Because there is a lost world, please don't miss this, there is a lost world wanting. And they're wanting to see someone who's authentic. They're wanting to see someone who claims to be following Jesus and they actually follow Jesus. They want to see someone who claims to live for the Lord and actually demonstrate with the character and the conduct of their life that they are living for the Lord. And so it's so important for us today to learn the same lesson. If we say that we have something more, that Christ is our Lord and our Savior, if we believe that with all of our heart and we know that, we need to understand that people are watching. People are waiting. And people are wanting to see authentic believers. So what does that look like? We asked that question last week. If we say we have something more, what does that look like in our lives? What does it look like to truly have something more, to be living the life for Christ? And we said, if you truly have something more, one thing you have is you have a heart for ministry. Now, what I meant by that was that you have a heart to invest in people. The Apostle Paul spent all of chapter 2 from verse 1 through 12 and just talking about how he wanted to pour into and invest in this church in Thessalonica. I mean, that was the heart of Paul. And he said, I'm doing it out of a deep rooted love for you. And remember last week I said this, that if we're really going to pour into people and we're going to have a heart for ministry, what we pour into them better not be our opinions. What we pour into them better not be our positions and our worldview. It better be this book right here. It better be the truth of Scripture that we pour into them. And when we pour it into them, do we pour it into them with a harsh overtone or do we pour it into with a gentle love? You remember last week we had the father and the mother, the, the firmness of a father's love, but the tenderness of a mother's love, and that's how we pour truth into them. And so when we have something more, first of all, that means that we have got to have a heart for ministry, to invest in people. But today what I want to look at is this. If we truly say that we have something more, we, what that looks like is that we have a genuine concern for others, that we have a genuine concern for others. Now, I want to hone in our thoughts today with this. Typically, when I say others, our mind immediately gravitates to our neighbors, our coworkers, those kinds of people. In fact, we do it all the time because one thing you're going to so sick of hearing me say over the next 20 years of us being together or longer until the Lord calls me home is this, is that we're going to be about a church that's going to love God and we're going to love people. I mean, we are going to be about those things. And even if we've got to force it sometimes, we're going to focus on loving God and loving people. That's what Jesus said. All of life hinges on two things, loving God first and then loving people. That's just it. That's how simple we're going to be around here. So I want to talk about genuine concern for others, but today I want to hone that into not people outside the church, but people in the church. Because here's what I've learned in almost 28 years of ministry. Churches like to eat their own, right? You ever been a part of a church like that? I mean, they like eat their own, not, not literally, but you know what I'm talking about. I mean, they, they implode. I mean, they implode from within. It's not so much the outside world. It's what's going on inside the church walls where people are like, I mean, some of the meanest people I have ever met in my life are people that go to church every Sunday. And I don't get that. Some of the people that I've met in my life that have zero joy, I mean, zero joy, are people that go to church every week. And I don't get that. And so I want us to look at what does it mean to have genuine concern for others, to genuinely be concerned about people that are part of the body of Christ. Because listen, who is Paul writing this letter to? The church at Thessalonica. He's writing to believers in the church of Thessalonica. And so what I want us to do today, if you have your Bibles, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, I want us to look at Paul's concern for this church and just see what God might teach us today. Here we go. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 1 says this. Therefore, 
when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind. Now let me just pause there for a minute and back up for a minute. At the end of chapter 2, verse 12, we talked about Paul wanting to invest in them with this deep-rooted love. Well then, from verse 13 to the end of the chapter, here's what happens. Paul talks about he knows that his church is going through affliction. They're going through persecution. They are wrestling in their faith. He understands that. And then he goes on and, and, and at the very end of chapter 2, and he says stuff like this. You know, I, I, we've been taken away from you. Remember, they were in threat of being killed, so they, slept, they slipped out at night time and he said hey I know you guys are wrestling here and I desire to be with you but the devil has hindered us from being back with you and so in chapter three is Paul laying out his concern and look what he says he says therefore when we could bear it no longer we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone and we sent Timothy our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were going to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass. And just as you know, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent him to learn, to, to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Now here in these five verses, we see the concern that Paul has for this church. And the first concern I want you to know, the concern I want you to notice is Paul's concerned about them spiritually. He's legitimately concerned about them spiritually. And there's really two things that Paul says here. The first one is this. It's found in verse 3, and it's that he's not sure that they can hold up under pressure. This is a church that's being attacked. Now listen, we don't remember, and we don't necessarily remember a time in our life when as believers we were really totally attacked for being a follower of Jesus. Can you remember that time? I can remember some ridicule. I can remember some brief persecution, but I'm talking like people being tarred, feathered, and burned on the stake. Do you remember those moments? They do, right? They do. Rome hated Christians, and Nero would use Christians tarred and feathered, hung on a pole, burning as lights to his garden. That's how Christians were treated. And so Paul's like, I've got some real concerns for you. And one of the concerns is that they would not be able to hold up under pressure. Look at what verse 3 says. Look at that again. He says this. He says, that no one be moved or, or altered or changed by these afflictions, for you yourself know that we were destined for this. He said that, that, that nobody be changed by the afflictions. In other words, Paul understood that this church was a young church. They were young in their faith. And here's what really was a struggle for them. Paul's not there anymore. Paul has left. He's been taken away. I mean, he was threat of persecution. He slipped out to Berea. He's no longer there. He's writing this letter back to them. This church, young in their faith, and the guy who established them, he is gone. And Paul understood something. He knew that oftentimes in our lives, afflictions become so overwhelming that they derail us in our faith. Amen? Come on, you know that's right, don't you? Some of you personally know that's right. Some of you can look at your life and you can see moments in your life when you derailed in your faith and when you kind of fell off the wagon and when your faith kind of got rocked a little bit because there was moments when you were feeling affliction. Maybe it's a physical affliction. Maybe it was a spiritual affliction. Maybe it was spiritual warfare. I mean, it doesn't matter what the affliction was, but many of us, all of us know, if you're a believer, you know there's a moment in your life when you wrestled with that and it had an easy bent toward derailing you from your faith. Can I just be real honest with you? I've had those moments in my life. Come on, I've had moments that would scare many of you. I've had moments of doubt. 
I've had moments of why God. I mean, I've had those moments. They weren't right moments for me, but I've had those moments. I mean, I've allowed the afflictions of life sometimes to totally derail me from where God wanted to take me. This church is what Paul was concerned about. He knew because they were young in their faith, and he knew because he wasn't there, that this church could easily be overwhelmed. And his concern was legitimate. But he wasn't just concerned they couldn't hold up under pressure. He was also concerned that they couldn't hold up under the devil's attack. Look at verse 5. He said this. For this reason, when I, when I came and bear it no longer, I sent him to you to learn about your faith, for that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. In other words, he says, listen, I'm not sure that you can hold up under the devil's attack. How many of you know this, that we really do have an enemy? You know that, amen? Some of you are like, not sure, we do. The Bible says we have an enemy. And for our struggles, not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and the rulers of this world, right? I.e., the devil, demons. There is a spiritual war going on. Now, some of you just got like, like all of a sudden you got goosebumps because that kind of freaks you out a little bit. Listen, we are in a spiritual warfare. We are in a spiritual battle. And Paul knew that this young church, young in their faith, listen, because they were young in their faith, they didn't know a lot. They didn't know the four spiritual laws. They didn't know a lot of what it meant to, to really, the convictions they needed to have and what it meant to really be a follower of Christ. All they knew is that Jesus died for me, he rose again, I'm on board. When, I mean, listen, here's the thing. When a dead man comes back to life, I'm with him. That's all they knew. Dead man died, came back, I'm on his team, hallelujah, amen, right? I'm for him. I, I'm his cheerleader. I am a fan and a follower of that guy. But they didn't know the intricacies about what it meant to, to live and to, to nurture and to mature. They didn't know all that. Why? Because they were a young church and they were young in their faith. And Paul knew that. And he was afraid and concerned that somehow the devil would come along and tempt them and they would give in to temptation and all the work that Paul had done would be in vain. Now here's the point. Paul's concern was legitimate, wasn't it? A young church, young in their faith, facing afflictions, under the devil's attack, and Paul's going, I'm concerned that you just aren't going to stand up under this affliction. I'm concerned that you just aren't going to be able to withstand the devil's attacks. And when I look at this, I'm like, Paul's concern is legitimate, isn't it? We understand this, don't we? We understand why Paul's concerned. If you understand it, say amen. I mean, if, you want, if, I, if I pin the picture of this young church struggling and Paul's concerned about them, I mean, we understand why Paul is concerned. Because guess what? We've seen this too in our lives. We've seen people being ridiculed for the faith, and somehow that totally rocks their confidence. They get questioned, they get made fun of, especially when you're a teenager and you try to stand for God, and everybody's like pointing you out and calling you out, and you know something's wrong with you because. It, it, here's the worst part: all you teenagers in the room is when other people who claim to be believers are the ones doing it. That's when it really gets kind of bad. But we know people who face persecution, and it totally rocks their confidence. Or we know people who are struggling with temptation. I mean, they are inundated with temptation, and they are wrestling and wrestling and wrestling, and it is totally leading them down a path of doubting God. I think about it. You remember the story in the garden? What was the, 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 the plan of the devil in the garden when he came to Eve? It was to create doubt. Surely God didn't say, yes, he did. Surely you won't die. And then they end up eating, right? Doubt. Can I tell you one of the greatest tools of the devil is to create doubt in the heart of, of believers. 
Doubt that God is faithful. Doubt that God is present. Doubt that God will sustain you. And doubt that God is with you. He wants to create doubt. And we've seen people that have been so inundated with temptation, so inundated with the thing the world has to offer and throws at us, that they are just really doubting and struggling. We've seen that, haven't we? We've also seen people who have had loss in their life. Death. Loss of a job. Who are struggling. Maybe they're in the middle of conflict and it rocks their faith. So when you think about that, don't we all know people that fit into one of those categories? We do. So we understand why Paul is so concerned with this church in Thessalonica. Here's my question for us. Are we as concerned about people in this body of Christ as Paul was for them? I know what some of you are going to say. Well, Doug, we're just not aware. We're just not aware of all the needs. You're right. You're right, we're not. But if we were, would we be concerned? If we were aware that there are people sitting here today, I mean, just look around. Look around. What do you see? And I asked this a couple of times. What do you see? Empty seats. And you know what I see? People that are normally here that aren't here today. And you know what? Real concern for them is not going, I'm just going to pray for them because their commitment is not just where it needs to be. That's what most of us would think. What about this? What if they had tragedy in their life? What if they're sick? What if something's happened and they're struggling in their faith? I mean, genuine concern doesn't automatically go to their lack of faithfulness. It should go to maybe something is going on that's preventing them, and genuine concern says, I need to do something about that, right? Not just go, I, I don't know why they're here. I, I don't know why they haven't been here. It's been three. I mean, I know how many weeks they haven't been here. It's been three weeks. I mean, they just need to get right with the Lord, right? And we kind of gravitate that way. See, genuine concern, if you knew the needs of people in this room today, if you knew that there are people that are overwhelmed with temptation in their life, if you knew that there are people that are struggling physically and spiritually, if you knew that there are marriages that are in jeopardy and on the brink of divorce, if you knew there are parents who are struggling with their teenagers, or teenagers struggling with their parents, if you knew that the finances were going through the cracks and things weren't going well, if you knew all the needs of the people in this room today, would you be as concerned for them as Paul was for Thessalonica? would you not rhetorical would you would you we're going to find out because look what happens next Paul's concern was about them spiritually but Paul's concern led to action and I want you to hear my heart this morning true genuine biblical concern for others always you can quote me on that always leads to action can you be concerned about somebody and it not lead to action? No is the answer. You, for, in fact, I've had people in my, in my life tell me, well, you know what, I just don't, I'm not sure that, that, I, that, I, that I'm genuinely concerned or I genuinely love these people. I mean, I mean, we all know people are messy and people are jacked up because we are too. But, I mean, there's just this real concern from some people that, hey, I'm not sure how much I love this person. Well, listen, if you love Jesus, you will always love people. If you don't love people, you're not desperately in love with Jesus. That's why Jesus says the greatest two things. Out of 613 laws, here are the greatest two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right? See, Paul's concern led to action. There's two things that Paul did. First of all, let's look in verse 1 and 2. Let's back up. He says this. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind in Athens alone, and we went and sent Timothy, our brother and co-worker with the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith. Now, here's what happened. Paul sent them help. His concern led to action. And one thing that Paul did is he sent them help. Now, who did he send? He sent Timothy. Right? 
And he tells us why he sent Timothy. On one hand, he sent Timothy to help establish their faith. On the other hand, to exhort them in their faith. That's what it says in the text, right? He sent them to establish and exhort them in their faith. Now, let's, let's think about those separately. He sent Timothy to help establish the faith. Now, why would that be important? This is a young church, right? A young church that's young in their faith. They don't know a lot. And Paul's concerned that they won't hold up under pressure. They won't hold up under the devil's attack. And so the only way to really ensure that is I need to do something. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to send my buddy Timothy, who's a co-worker and laborer for the gospel, and I'm going to send him to them And with the idea that, Timothy, I want you to establish them in their faith, meaning I want you to pour the truth about Jesus and pour the truth about our Heavenly Father into them that they might be able to build deep-rooted convictions of the faith. That's what it means to establish faith in that. He sent Timothy to help them develop deep-rooted convictions of the faith. Now, what did Timothy use? Did he have a, 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 like a little training guide? Well, I think when you read Scripture, here's what you know. Timothy went and he invested the truth in them, Scripture in them. Now, Timothy didn't have 66 books of the New Testament and open up his ESV version and read it to the church of Thessalonica. He didn't do that. He didn't have the Greek New Testament. What he did have was a lot of the Old Testament. He knew a lot of the Old Testament because of his heritage, but he also had the apostles' teachings, the things they taught about Jesus and who he was and what he'd done and about our Heavenly Father. And quite possibly, many scholars believe he might have had some of the writings of the New Testament because of the time frame where this happened, but he didn't have them all. But the point is that, that Timothy went there to invest truth in them to establish their faith, to establish a deep-rooted conviction. And here's my point. The best way to establish faith because there's some people in the room today, maybe you're new to the faith. Maybe you're a new believer. And you're trying to figure out this thing. How do I grow? How do I mature? The best way to mature is by pouring this into your life. 2 Timothy 3.16 says this. I think it's going to be on the screen. 2 Timothy 3.16. For all scriptures what? Come on. All scriptures what? Breathe out by God and it's profitable, meaning it's useful for teaching, for proof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Here's what Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16, that I want you to pour truth in them. I want you to pour scripture in them. Why? Because all scripture is breathed out by God. This 66 books comes from our Heavenly Father. If you want a love letter that will radically change your life, it's in 66 books and here it is. This is the very breath and the very heart and the very mind of God right here. This is the only revelation that you need. It's right here. Right here. And here's what Paul said. This book, this truth, listen, hear what it is. It's profitable. It's useful. Meaning, it, it is important to us. Why? Because it's good for teaching. You know what teaching is? It tells us what is right. When you read scripture, we find out what is the right thinking. What is the right thinking we should have? What is the heart of God? What is the mind of God? What is right doctrinally? That's what? Teaching. This is good for reproof. You know what reproof is? That what's not right. That which is not right. So the thinking that I have or the propensities that I have that are totally foreign to this, it brings reproof to my life. It shows me that's not the right way to think, that I'm totally wrong on that. But it also provides correction. You know what correction is? It tells me how to get right, right? It tells me where I'm wrong and how to change that in my life. And then there's training. You know what training's for? How to stay right. How I can live my life in such a way that I stay in line and stay in step with the Holy Spirit of God. He said, this book... Is valuable. See, Paul understood that when you pour truth into people or you pour in scripture to people, it feeds us, it guides us, and it empowers us. So Paul's concern led to action. He sent Timothy. He said, I want you to go and establish their young faith, but also I want you to go and exhort them in their faith. 
Now, remember we talked about exhorting. I had Elijah up here, and it was kind of awkward there for a moment last week when I talked about the difference in encouragement and exhorting. Encouragement is just a pat on the back going, hey, man, I'm with you, bro. But exhorting is when you lock arms and you do life together. See, Paul sent Timothy because he wanted to not only establish their faith, but he wanted to exhort them in their faith. He understood that this young church in Thessalonica that's struggling in their faith, he understood that they needed some reinforcements. He understood they needed somebody to be present there to lock arms with them and to walk a journey. Can I tell you something that I have learned and continue to learn in my life as a pastor for some 28 years now? Is a lot of times people just want you to journey with them. People just want to know they're not doing life alone. People just want to know that when everything falls apart, there's somebody that's going to be there for them and with them and encourage them along the way. And Paul said, this is a young church, man. They're being tested in their faith. The devil's attacking them. And I can't be there, so I'm going to send Timothy. And Timothy, I want you to go, and I want you to lock arms, and I want you to do life with them. Paul's concern led to action. Let me give you a second action that he did, and it's this, that he prayed for them. He prayed for them. Now, in verse 1 through 5, we see the heart of Paul, his concern, him sending Timothy. And then in verse 6 and 8, you can read it later, 6 through 8, we find out that eventually Timothy brought Paul back a report saying, hey, look, they have held up under pressure. They have held up under the devil's attack. I mean, this church's faith, while it is young, man, it is maturing. I mean, their faith is rock solid. Now, if you're Paul at that point, wouldn't you if, you, if I was Paul at that point, I would go, man, they are standing up under pressure. They are standing up under the devil's attack. Guess what, man? Man, keep, keep, keep marching on and go on to something else. But that's not what Paul does because Paul understands something. You may be faithful today, but tomorrow's coming. You may, you may stood up under the attack of the devil today, but there is another day. The devil's not one and done. He's going to keep coming back. And so Paul does something very powerful. He prays for them. Look with me in verse 9 through 13. It says this. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God as we pray most earnestly night and day. Now listen, that, listen what kind of prayer is Paul praying? What kind of prayer does it say he's praying there? How often? How often? Right here. How often? Night and day. That is not a casual prayer. You know, I was watching Rocky yesterday. Anybody like Rocky? Okay, good. All godly people do. So I was watching Rocky yesterday, and it was right before we fought Apollo. And if you remember what Rocky did, he went to his Catholic priest, uh, the parish, and the priest opens the window, and Rocky's like, you know, hey, I was hoping you'd kind of throw down a prayer for me kind of thing. And he's like, threw a prayer down. I'm like, that's not this kind of prayer. This is not the prayer where he's saying, God, I'm mindful of them. No, no, no. He says, I'm praying for you. Day and night. He is earnestly praying for this church. And look what he prays here. He says this in verse 10. As most, uh, pray most earnestly night and day that we may see your face again. Supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you that may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So that he may establish your hearts blameless and holy before the God our Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all the saints. Here's what he prayed, first of all, that their faith might mature. Their faith might continue to mature. Look at me in verse 10. It says this. As we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply 
what is lacking in your faith. Now, Paul's not digging at them for having a lack of faith. That's not what the point of the passage is. What he's saying is this. Paul understands that we never spiritually arrive. Amen? We never. And if you think you've arrived, you are sadly mistaken. We never spiritually arrive. And Paul understood. They said, listen, I'm praying that God will continue to mature you in your faith. I'm not digging you. I just know that, that, that we never arrive. And, you know, faith is kind of like a muscle. The more you exercise it, what happens? What happens? The grows and the stronger it becomes. Did you know that God allows trials into our life not to destroy our faith but to grow our faith? Did you know that? But boy, it sure doesn't feel like it when it happens, does it? So Paul's reminding them, I'm praying for you, and I'm praying for you that you would continue to grow in your faith. And then he said, I pray that their love might abound. And look in verse 11 and 12 what he says. It says, the Lord will direct our path to you, and may the Lord God um, uh, make you increase and abound in love for one another as we've done for you. In other words, I pray that you would grow in your love for people. Not just grow in the way you're thinking, but I pray that you would love people the way that we have loved you. That sounds familiar to somebody else that might have said something a lot like that, right? That we are to love others as who love Christ loved us, right? And Paul said, I want you to love people like we've loved you. Now, the point of what Paul's trying to make here is this, is that as believers, when we are maturing in our faith and we are growing in our faith, it should result in a deep love and concern for others. I was reading Chuck Sundahl, and this is something worth writing down. It's not in your notes today. I was reading Chuck Sundahl, and he said this. He says, for a believer to love others, here's what that means. He said, first of all, it means to listen even when they don't agree. Now, I had to pause there because a lot of times when I'm talking, if they don't agree, I'm going to work harder to convince them because I know they're wrong and I know that I'm right. And so I'm not going to listen. I'm just going to turn into over-talk you mode. That's terrible, right? That's not the way to do it, especially when you're married. That's a really bad idea for marriage, right? He says, listen, even when they don't agree. Secondly, he says, show them, demonstrate grace to them instead of focusing on their faults. I mean, loving people is about demonstrating grace. Because here's what I know. I, believe it or not, I screw up all the time. And if you don't believe me, ask my wife and Daniel. Daniel will really tell you. Daniel and David. I mean, I, I screw up all the time. But here's what happens when I screw up. If you know that I've screwed up, here's what I want you to know. I want you to know my whole life story. I want you to know how I grew up as a kid, how some insecurities I have in my life. Because when you come to that moment of being upset with me for blowing it, I want you to understand all the intricacies of my life so that you can go, man, that poor guy, I got to show him some grace. Right? I mean, I do. I want you to know all of my life. Isn't that the way we should treat other people? But most often what happens is when people do something they shouldn't do, we're quick to judge them and we're quick to point out their faults and we're quick to condemn them instead of showing them grace. Now, grace doesn't overlook it, but grace demonstrates love to them. He said, Twindall says, not only do we need to make sure that we uh, listen, but we need to demonstrate grace. And then he says, thirdly, you need to recognize value in them. You need to find and let them know that they bring value to the table, that they matter. And then last of all, he says this, if you really want to love somebody else, you've got to selflessly serve them. Now, here's the reason I think Paul talked about abounding in love. Because I'm sure the words of Jesus were echoing his mind when he said this. They will know that you're my disciples. By the what? By the what? By the what? Love you have for one another. Paul said, I'm going to pray that you mature in your faith. And as you mature in your faith, I'm going to pray that your love would grow. And lastly, he said this. I'm going to pray that your lives might be 
holy. Look with me in verse 13 as we wrap this up. Verse 13 says this. So that he may establish your hearts blameless and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus and all the saints. In other words, I'm going to pray that your lives might be holy. In other words, that the character and the conduct of your lives would be set apart. That you would not live like the world, but you would live different than the world, and you would live and reflect Jesus himself. That's what Paul prayed. Now think about his prayer. He's praying day and night for them. And here's the three things he prays for over and over and over again for the church of Thessalonica. That they would mature in their faith. That they would keep growing. That their love as they grow would continue to grow and abound. And that ultimately their lives, because their love is growing and abounding, and because they're maturing, that their lives would be holy. Everybody say holy. It means to be set apart. It doesn't mean you wear a right robe and you're cleaned up. It means to be set apart is what it means. He said, I'm praying that you be set apart. I'm praying you would quit looking like the world and you would start reflecting and mirroring the image of Christ. That's what he prayed for them. Now, it all starts with that. It all starts with this prayer that they would stand, be able to stand blameless before God because of the holiness of their lives. Now, here's what I love about Paul, and I want to kind of drill down this a minute. Here's what I love is that Paul's concern led to action. He sent them help, and he prayed for them. If we can say, well, go, I ask you, if you knew the concerns and heartbeat of everybody in this room, would you have more concern for them that you knew it than you did when you didn't know it? And everybody said what when I asked the question? Okay, that was not convincing. What did everybody say? And I said, okay, we're going to see how much you really care. Because real concern always leads to what? Action. It did for Paul. So here's my question. When we have concern about others, does it lead to action in our lives? Do we send them help? Do we offer help, try to invest in them spiritually to help them nurture what's going on in their life? Do we, listen, not just pray for them. When I read Paul praying night and day, it really has this idea that he was pleading to God on their behalf. All day long, all night long, that he was pleading to God on their behalf. Do we show that kind of concern for people? When I was a kid, I love superheroes. Anybody else like superheroes, like Batman, Superman, Iron Man? Okay, yeah, a few of us, okay. I love superheroes. I still love superheroes. I still go to the DC movies, the Marvel movies. I love that stuff. I mean, I, I, just, I love it. But here's why I love it. It's not because Superman has got the strength that nobody's ever seen. It's not because Batman has more gadgets than Inspector Gadget himself. I mean, it's not all that stuff. I love it because you see two qualities in every superhero. You can, you can test me on this. Go home and watch some movies and see. Here's two qualities in every superhero. Here's the first one. They see things clearly. And second of all, they have an irresistible urge to act. Every superhero has the same two qualities. They see the situation clearly, and they have an irresistible urge to act. That's what makes them a hero. It's not because Superman can shoot lasers out of his eyes or Iron Man can fly out. No, what makes them a hero is they see the situation clearly, and they have an irresistible urge to act. And here's my thinking. Is it possible that we need some godly heroes today who can see situations clearly in the lives of others and have an irresistible urge to do something about it? Wouldn't that be awesome? Wouldn't it be fantastic 
if we walked out of here and some of us were some godly heroes that looked at our, that our situation of people maybe in this body today that are struggling and that we really would, would have concern for them and we would see the situation clearly and God would open our eyes and that we would have this irresistible urge to do something about it. That would be fantastic. Seven years ago, um, my wife and I, Sonia, we, we got a new neighbor across the street from us in, in Missouri it was a house that looked just like ours. I mean, we lived in one of those subdivisions that the same builder built like 80% of the homes, so like all of them looked the same, which is different colors. You've probably seen subdivisions like that. And so, so we went over one day, and we were talking to them, and their, their names were the White family. It was, it was Brian, Sarah, and they had two little kids. Uh, they had a four-year-old son named Nolan and then a two-year-old daughter, precious daughter named uh, Ellie. And uh, they were just a sweet, sweet family. And so we got to know the White family really, really well. In fact, Brian and I are super good friends even to today. And as we got to know them, you know how people began to share their story with you, began to talk about life. And she grew up Catholic, but she, she kind of converted, and she had a faith in Christ, but really wasn't too faithful to church, but, but loved the Lord. And he grew up Baptist, and so, you know, but he still wasn't faithful, but he loved the Lord. And so they were just trying to struggle. So, you know, we just kind of invested in them. We poured into them. We loved them. They were super sweet, super cute, and they weren't crazy neighbors. And so we thought, that's a couple for us. And so we began to go, go over there and talk to them. And then after about our third or fourth visit, we found out that Sarah had been diagnosed with stage four colon cancer. And that was the journey that she was on. And she was battling it. And the more we talked to them, the more concerned we became. And every Sunday night, we had a co-ed small group that would meet in our home, which is right across the street. So we were so concerned about them, about their faith. You know, I mean, think about this. I mean, you know, can you imagine the internal struggle? Some of you can because you've gone through it. Can you imagine the internal struggle you're going through when you're battling something like cancer? Spiritually, can you imagine that? I can't because I've never gone through it, but I've walked a journey with many that have, and she was one of them. And so we became increasingly concerned about them, so we invited them over to our house and said, won't you, won't you be part of our small group? Just come on over. Just join us. I mean, it's all young couples, you know, just back then we were young. And so it was all young couples, and so come on over and just enjoy it with us. And so they came over, and for like the next two or three months, they were every Sunday night. We had a group of about 16 couple, I mean, sixteen people, eight couples, and it was just awesome. And they began to share their story with the entire group. And you know what happened? The entire group became concerned about them. And part of our small group time was really pouring God's word, and not to just their lives, but all of our lives, about how to deal with tragedy, how to deal with difficulties, how to deal with afflictions. And we became so concerned about them, not only do we try to invest scripture into all of our lives, we began to plead for them on their behalf to God. We be, I mean, we would spend a lot of our small group time just in tears begging God to heal her, to touch her body and to heal her and heal them because she had a four-year-old son and a two-year-old precious daughter. I mean, we would just plead with God, God, would you just do something crazy and just touch her body and take the can? I mean, I remember just coming out of those moments, just us weeping and praying and, and, and pleading with God on their behalf. I remember those moments. I remember even as a church, we had a Thursday where they both, they got a bad report. And my aunt who was battling breast cancer got a bad report. So we said, okay, Thursday at 9 o'clock, if you're free, come to the church, which was the Holiday Inn Ballroom, which was kind of weird. And so we all met there, and like 200 people showed up, and we put them in the middle of the circle, and we surrounded them, and we laid hands, and we put oil. We did anything we could think of biblically, and we just prayed, and we just pled with God. And we said, God, we, we are so concerned about them that we've been pouring in truth, but now we're, we're approaching your throne on their behalf. And I remember those moments. And they didn't just happen once, it happened over and over again. And my aunt and Sarah both lost their battle with cancer. Man, it was a terrible time. Now, I know God healed them both. He just chose to do it on the other side. I know that. But it was hard. It was hard. And what was really hard is they asked me to do the funeral, at least a large portion of it. 
And so I got up to do the funeral, and I'm standing there, and it was a, it was, there were so many people that they almost considered having it in a gymnasium. But the First Baptist Church where I used to serve there, they actually could hold about 1,200 people, 1,300 people. And I got up there with thousands of people sitting out there. And every time I mentioned Sarah or a quality or a characteristic of Sarah, you would just see people falling apart because they knew it was true. I mean, they just knew it was true about her. And I walked away from that event, and I got in my car after the whole thing was over with, after the grace I was over with, and I just remember weeping. Because here's what I learned. You ready? Please don't miss this. Here's the point. Here's what I learned. Truly being concerned about others is not casual. It's personal. Right? Truly caring about other people is not something we just casually do. It is personal. Because we are investing ourselves in our prayers in them to God. Listen, I want to be that kind of church. Amen? I want to be that kind of church. That we are so aware of the needs of people within this body of Christ that we not only offer God's word to encourage them, but we plead on their behalf before a mighty God and that we just pour into them because we understand that being concerned about them is not casual. It's personal. It's deep. And I want to be that kind of church. Don't you? Come on, don't you? Well, we're going to find out. Everybody stand up with me. Everybody stand up. Here's what we're going to do. We've, we've not done this, and I'm going to ask you to have courage like you've never had before. Because I know this is going to be totally different than anything we've ever done in invitation. But here's what I know. Everybody look this way. Everybody look this way. Here's what I know. And if you're a first-time guest, man, you hit the perfect Sunday because you're going to find out what we're made of today. Because we are a church that love God and we are going to love people. And we're going to love people in this space. We're going to love people in this body. And so if you're here today and you say this, hey, Doug, I'm a believer or maybe I'm not a believer. And I just know that I am struggling. There's some temptation that I'm struggling with. Are there some afflictions that have come my way? And maybe it's a physical affliction. Maybe it's disease or maybe it's injury or maybe it's sickness. And maybe it's something that's going on. Maybe a surgery coming up. But there's some things that were waving heaven on me affliction-wise. Maybe it's my job. Maybe it's a path that God has me on. I mean, I'm just struggling today, Doug. I mean, listen, there's a whole gamut of things. I mean, just because you're struggling with a job situation doesn't mean that small comparison someone wrestling with cancer. And affliction is an affliction. Amen? No matter what you're going through, it is weighing on your soul and your spirit. And if you find yourself here today and you say, Doug, man, I'm struggling with either being persecuted, I'm wrestling with just doubt, I have an affliction, I've got an ailment, I'm struggling. Here's all I'm going to ask you. I'm not going to ask you to come forward. I'm just going to ask you right now. And I know everybody's looking around. That's why you need courage. I'm going to ask you to step out into one of your aisleways. There's four aisleways. Just step out in the middle of the aisleway. Just stand there. I don't want you to come forward. But if that's you, just step out. Just step out. I'm not going to ask you to say anything. Just step right there. Just step out. You're struggling with something. Come on. You're struggling with something. Just step out. Just step out there. There's no judgment. There is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. That walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Just step out. And here's what we're going to do. Okay? Those of us that haven't stepped out, I'm going to ask you to surround those that have. And even if you're the ones that stepped out, I'm going to ask you just to put your arm on somebody. So if you're in the middle of the aisles, just find someone that stepped out and go put your arm around them. Go put your hand on them. And we're going to be the church, and we're going to plead to God on their behalf. And so here's what we're going to do. You don't have to pray out loud, but if you want to, you can. You don't have to know their junk. You don't have to know what their struggle is. All you need to know is they're struggling. 
And I want you to do something very precious today. I want you to plead to God on their behalf and ask God to meet their need. Ask God to touch their struggles and ask God to reveal himself to them. So right now, with every head bowed and every eye closed, just those you're touching, just pray for them, then I'll pray for us in just a moment. out to God. Just continue to play it out. You don't have to know their name or their story. Just know they're struggling with the throne of God that he would step in and intervene and do something. approach the throne together. God, there are so many people in the room today that just were honest. And I thank you for that. Just going, I'm wrestling. And we don't know what it was with. It, it could be a lot of different things. But it's just a great reminder that we come into this place every Sunday and we celebrate you that we all have burdens that are weighing down on us. And God, may this as a church make us more mindful of the people that are around us, that while they have a smile on their face and a pep in their step, maybe their life is being shattered by something. And we need to more than just give them a casual greeting, but we need to be invested in them. God, may today begin a beginning place for us as a church that we are not just casually concerned with people, but we are personally concerned with people. That we are willing to meet their need and to plead to you on their behalf, to intercede not casually, but desperately that you would intervene on the lives of those who call Cross Life East their home. God, I don't know what all the struggles are, but I know there are many. Some are hurting physically. Some are hurting spiritually. Some marriages possibly are struggling. Some job opportunities, we're just waiting for you to show up. Some students are struggling with their parents and parents struggling with their students. We know all this stuff is going on. But God, we desperately plead today that you would step in, that you would intervene, and you would touch all of our hearts today. That today you would wreck us, that today you would inspire us, today that you would mold us and shape us and begin a new path for us today. God, we pray that your spirit would just be fresh in this place and that we would sing and that we would celebrate your goodness in our lives. May we be that what Timothy was to that church May we be that to people in this church. May we exhort people 
And may we encourage and establish the faith in those around us. God, we love you and we thank you and we celebrate you today. For it's in your precious and your glorious son's name we pray. And all God's people shout amen. Amen. Let's just give the Lord some praise this morning.